The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Conversations Brewing Podcast with your hosts, Divya and Ravisha, two coffee-loving best friends who dive into weekly conversations on wellness, culture, and growing into your authentic self. As two healthcare professionals, children of immigrants, and humans always striving to learn more, they bring their unique complexities of their wellness journeys into this podcast space by sharing their stories and featuring other like-minded experts in the field. Always with a cup of coffee in hand, humor, and never-ending authenticity, dive in with the two of them as they brew the kind of conversations that we don't have enough of, but that matter the most. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Conversations Brewing. This week, we have a guest, and it was really exciting to get to talk to her. Her name was Ayushi, and Ravish is going to tell you a little bit more about her. But in terms of an overview of the episode, Ayushi is a therapist. She is practicing in Texas. And we talked about a topic that I imagine many of you struggle with, and that is high-functioning anxiety and perfectionism. And so she specializes in working with that. So she had a lot of really great insights to share with us. Ravisha, do you want to read off a little bit more about Ayushi? Yeah, of course. Um, So Ayushi is a licensed clinical social worker and women's wellness coach. Um, She's worked in both private and public sector of mental health for over eight years, and her past opportunities highlight her work in the community inpatient psychiatric facilities, the NICU, discharge planning, case management, psychotherapy, group therapy, and psychoeducation. Man, that's a word full. She is keeping herself busy and you, she gave a lot of knowledge for us. So you all can hear it in the episode too. Yeah. And she's helped many individuals, couples, and families or incorporate the purpose to love your behavior. Mm-hmm. And um, after working with her, her clients even go on to live even more enriching and fulfilling lives. Um, and it was also really nice to talk to another South Asian therapist um, yeah. like Divya is. And so we got a lot of insight from her about that as well. Um, to find Ayushi on social media, you can find her at Love Your Behavior. And her website is www.loveyourbehavior.com. So, um, yeah, listen on for a great conversation with Ayushi. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Conversations Brewing. Today we have another special guest on, Ayushi. So welcome, Ayushi, to Conversations Brewing. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you both today. I'm excited to have this conversation because one thing about Ayushi is that she shares a commonality in being a mental health therapist with me. And so Um, I'm really excited to have another therapist, especially a South Asian therapist in the podcast. And I think that you have so much insight that you can definitely give us about some of our topics that we're going to cover today. So let's maybe just dive in really easily for our listeners, um, to just tell us a bit about you, what had you be a therapist, just anything that you would like our listeners to know about you. Yes. And kind of like you said, you know, kind of being a South Asian female therapist is a really special place to be. Um, You know, I think I found myself in this position because I was always really 
almost like from childhood, I was always like extremely empathetic, even as a child, um, and extremely emotional. And I felt very sensitive to other people's like emotions and actions. And then when I got older, I found myself um, feeling sometimes uncomfortable frequently in situations because I was so empathetic and emotional. And then, and what we know, like kind of now when we talk about like highly sensitive people, mm-hmm. I think I definitely had some of that, those markings for it, but we didn't really have that vocabulary ever. And then I had to really find kind of like a productive way to manage some of this like empathy and emotions. And I, you know, I really wanted to make it productive for me. And so I, I was always interested in psychology, um, sort of how the brain works relationships really always interested me. I always kind of felt like I was that friend giving advice constantly. Um, I would be the person people would reach out to and, you know, in crisis or, you know, when they just needed somebody to talk to. And it'd be, it was very natural for me to sort of, um, you know, pick up on the things I was studying about like the brain and emotions and behavior. And I got really interested in it. And so I went to grad school for social work and public health. Um, So I worked, you know, in community health. Um, I also did a lot of case management as well. Um, And then, you know, now I find myself working in the private sector and I really love it. That's so interesting. Um, I really resonated when you said that you've always been an empathetic person. Um, Divya and I also are like empaths as well. And so I do. Hardcore empaths. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, it is like, I feel like a unique um, characteristic to have and to also realize that in yourself that, you know, you are very empathetic towards other people. And so it's nice that you like chosen a career that like you feel like you would really thrive in. Right, right. And I tell everybody, I'm like, I mean, if you're an empath, doesn't mean you need to become a therapist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's like, you definitely need to find space for that emotional energy, because it it, it can be draining, you know? Yeah. And I think also in the world, we don't really take that much time to prioritize slowing down and honoring that emotional energy. So having like that kind of empathy it comes with slowing down, which I think is a trait that we don't end up doing a lot in our society. But I guess even with the three of us speaking from this like South Asian perspective, it's not calm. Like we have empathy. Like I'm sure a ton of other people in the South Asian community have empathy, but doing something with it, like career wise, isn't something I guess that a lot of people do because we don't have a ton of representation in like the therapy, social work space from South Asian. So what was that like for you to join that space given some of your identities? Yeah, I feel like, you know, we kind of grow up and being told, you know, emotions are bad, you know, this, you know, you're, you're not going to make any money. You know, there's, you know, if you, if you don't be a therapist, you know, become a MD, become a psychiatrist, like, you know, always like, you know, do something else. And I kind of really had to kind of stick, you know, what was like true to me um, in this field. And also I feel like I'm learning as I go, Um, you know, the South Asians, like we don't have a lot of vocabulary around like mental health. And so I find myself really having to create, um, you know, get creative with how I explain things to my clients, how I explain explain things to my clients clients and their families Mm -hmm. also. Um, So I would say it has really been, you know, that's kind of been the struggle almost, but also it's been kind of really like had me, I'm really tapping into like my creative side 
because it's yeah. so important to kind of spread that awareness for me. Um, would you say like a lot of your clients are like also South Asian or do you have like a mix of? Yeah, so right now I'm my, my uh, clientele is 100% South Asian. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. It can be so hard to find a South Asian therapist too. And so I know that like even when people come to therapy, like it, it, wh- who, I, who I've worked with who are South Asian, they can also be like, it's so nice to have a therapist that I don't have to explain. Um, because I know that for some people, that's really important. Ravisha and I talk about our therapy journeys a lot. And Ravisha, you'd even said when looking for a therapist, like finding a South Asian therapist was pretty important for you, right? Yeah, I think I decided to find a specific, specifically a South Asian therapist just because of like all the cultural stuff that like we grow up with. And um, I do think it's like more helpful when someone kind of understands the other side of it. So I'm sure like Ayushi for you, like a lot of your clients do appreciate you having like that South Asian background. And it probably just helps like with your conversations with your clients, I'm sure. Absolutely. I think you know, some words just wouldn't need to like, you know, be explained so much or some like family dynamics, especially some things with like relationships and, you know, just cultural things that are just at the forefront of the society is just, you know, they don't have to, you know, the client feels like they're not having to over explain things or, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm also, you know, giving culturally competent advice, um, which I think also, you know, just kind of helps strengthen that relationship. Yeah. What would you say are some of the biggest mental health struggles that you find in our current society? And also, I guess in the South Asian community, I mean, I don't know if there are any that you find to be overlapping, but with those two questions, you can answer either or, or if they overlap. I think overall right now, you know, I do work with a lot of individuals that have very, you know, they're, they are high functioning. um, And and they have that, you know, what we define as like high functioning anxiety, some of that perfectionism mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, it takes a while for people who have a high functioning anxiety to get to the point that they're kind of, you know, with me in my telehealth office, right? Like, so something has made them so uncomfortable that now they're seeking therapy. So some of these like symptoms were always there, but maybe something triggered it. So maybe they just got married and now they're, you know, extremely restless or, you know, they just had a baby and they're having, they're really irritable or they're having um, sleep problems or, you know, just something is happening that's making them uncomfortable. And that's kind of when they end up, you know, with, you know, with me as a client. Yeah, that's really interesting because, like, I would also agree that I w- would, ha- like, have high-functioning anxiety. And, like, one of the reasons that, like, I really felt like it was, like, time for me to find a therapist was because, like, of that restlessness feeling of just feeling, like, like not completely, like, feeling 100%, like, in tune with how I'm feeling. And it, I think it's because, like, it's, like, I've always had that. And, like, seeking that kind of perfectionism, like, finally got to me. Right. Right. And, and that's, and that, that's, you know, exactly what you said right there. It like finally got to you. So something, some event might've triggered it or some just like enough, enough nights of feeling restless, right. Enough nights of feeling um, irritable. And at some point it's like, okay, something, something's wrong, you know, and, and, you know, these are high functioning people, right. They're not doing 
poorly at work, usually they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, meeting all their expectations and their obligations, but they're extremely anxious. And this is not just a, I'm anxious, like once a week, they're anxious every single day. Um, Yeah. And I think the hard thing with high functioning anxiety and perfectionism is people get in like this loop with it, of it benefiting them in our society with things like work, and maybe they are getting like, while performing and they just like stay on this wheel of high functioning anxiety but then when you get out of those kind of I guess more like evaluative settings that it's it's more I don't know it's it's exhausting right like there's aspects of it that's helpful or quote-unquote helpful Mm -hmm. so that's why so many people have gone through it especially I guess with school but then once you become more of an adult you realize that there are more areas that it's not benefiting you than benefiting you Right, right. And at that point, you're just kind of suffering with anxiety and silence a little more. Um, And I think in adulthood, like you said, like in school, some of that might have been, you know, work to their favor. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of get, you know, as, as adults, it's like, you know, sometimes some of that anxiety and perfectionism can just look like, like you kind of said, like a cycle where it's, and sometimes that looks like, you know, extreme procrastination even. And then, then you're kind of losing out on time and opportunities because you're so stressed about not doing perfectly. And then you kind of give it all you have, but that wasn't enough for you. So now you're chronically always disappointed or you're always stressed out. And then, you know, you're just so dissatisfied with your kind of like production. And then there you go to the first step again, then we're back to procrastinating. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really is pretty vicious of the cycle. How, um, for our listeners who probably don't know, how would you define, um, like high functioning anxiety to someone who like, doesn't really know what that term means? I would say it's, you know, it's the person that's sort of meeting, you know, all their needs, you know, or in like society needs, you know, they're going to work. They are, you know, probably maintaining their relationships. They're, they're showing up to social events. They're, they're, you know, doing what they need to do to sort of perform on the outside, but inside internally, they're really struggling. Mm. And so, you know, clinically they say like, you know, it's like excessive anxiety for, you know, on most days for, you know, let's say, I think it's like six months, but then, you know, it, but it's like, you go home at night and you're extremely restless and, you know, you're, you're completing tasks, but you're also procrastinating and you, you can't really concentrate on one thing or another. Um, you're also tired all the time. That's a big one, right? Like you're just constantly tired. Mm-hmm. Irritability is also another one. Um, I would say those two are the ones where people often seek help that, and then like sleep problems. Also there's physical symptoms, right? You have the muscle tension, the headaches, you know, um, I see clients and they're like, why am I so tired all the time? Like I'm sleeping, you know, eight to 10 hours. What, like, what is that? And oftentimes that's that high functioning anxiety. Um, it's also really easy to hide. Mm-hmm. You know? And then sometimes a life event happens and then you're triggered. And, and at that point you don't know kind of where this came from, but really it's probably something that's been happening for, for longer than you think oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like mo- like we're like in our 20s um, and do you feel like most people like in this age group too, like most of us do end up having high functioning anxiety just because like the way that like society kind of portrays us or portrays like our culture to be like, oh, like hustle, like, you know, find- keep hustling, finding things that are like your passion, but then also like just working extremely hard at it. Like, 
do you think it's like pretty prevalent in almost like a lot of people in their 20s? I would say, you know, yes. Um, you know, it, it is um, not, you know, that's not to say everyone will get experience high functioning anxiety. You know, some it might, you know, be debilitating for others, you know, they find ways to manage it. I do think that there's uh, circumstances that make you more predisposed to having high functioning anxiety. And, you know, and I would say a lot of it stems from like childhood really. And just, and also just like your level of coping. I think all of that goes hand in hand and also your life circumstances. I think in your twenties, kind of like what you're, you know, the age that you're stating, like, you know, there's a lot of change happening in that period of time, right? Oftentimes you're graduating from college. You're trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. Maybe that was like, one of the first times you're out of mom and dad's house, like, you know, maybe you're in a relationship or maybe all your friends are in relationships and you're not and friendships are different. I mean, it's a really difficult time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can feel really hard. I think with the high functioning anxiety, because like you said, externally people might be seeming like they're okay, Mm -hmm. that it can be so hard to, for people to feel like they can really even seek help, right? Because they probably are known to be the one that quote unquote has it all together or that everyone's looking at them and being like, oh my gosh, your life seems so perfect. And it's like usually those people that internally you have no clue what they're going through. So what's like been for you, like when people come to therapy, do they, have you noticed that they struggle to even maybe accept that they have anxiety because externally people don't see it. So internally they struggle to really kind of cope with it and recognize it. Uh, You know, what I see more honestly is guilt. I see a lot of guilt around, around having these kinds of feelings. I think a lot of people, you know, with high function anxiety are like, my life is pretty great. Like if you look at my life, like, you know, I have people that love me. I have a support system. I have a good job. I have all these things, you know, but why do I feel this way? So there's a lot of guilt associated with those feelings. And I think that is probably the hardest, um, feeling to overcome is feeling guilty for that anxiety. Why do you think that like that feeling of guilt is there? Like, you know, cause I, I mean, I, I know like a lot of the times we like, like to, we are appreciative of, about a lot of the things that we have. And like, you know, we do like take a step back and like think, Oh yeah, like, I'm lucky for like this, this and that. But what do you think like initiates that guilt feeling? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of that guilt starts again, I'm going to say in childhood, I think, you know, if I'm just taking like the South Asian culture, for example, you know, a lot of times when, you know, if, you know, they tell their mom and dad, Hey, like I have I'm anxious or I'm depressed. It'd be like, Oh, why are you anxious or depressed? Like you have food, you have a house, you have, you know, a new car, you have all these things. And so then you start associating with anxiety and depression with almost shame, So it's like, if I feel those things, I'm, you know, I'm disappointing somebody. And then, I mean, and you, I mean, just imagine kind of just like holding that in for so many years of your life. And then now you're in your twenties or, you know, you're about to get a new relationship or you get a new job or like, you know, all these things are happening at the same time. And so it's like, of course, that's going to kind of spiral at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some common times that you notice? high functioning anxiety really settling in. And I guess I asked this question with um, even just like kind of sharing a bit 
on what I've experienced with mm-hmm. that. I've definitely struggled with anxiety for a lot of my life, but I think that it really came to a head when I got in my current relationship. Cause I've been with my husband now for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I think relationships can kind of highlight that sometimes because for me, it was like, I could just like go through life and it's just me. But then when there's another person that you're always with, and when you have these kind of behaviors is more of like a mirror to it. So for me, I noticed that it comes up when you're in a relationship. And I've seen that with a lot of my clients too. But for you, like, what have you seen common settings or situations where people start to notice like, oh, maybe I have something going on with me? Yeah, for me, definitely the relationships. I think marriage has been a big one or um, after the engagement really is like where I see it a lot. Um, Cause that's kind of where things are, emotions are heightened, fam- like uh, the families are talking. I mean, you know, the South Asian culture, you know, weddings are a big production um, that, and also um, postpartum. So I do work with um, a lot of folks that are postpartum and, you know, they, they have a child or, or like even a little bit after like moms and they see their child doing some things that are really triggering for them and they don't understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like those two settings, especially, and, you know, also I think helping professions like medical professionals, yeah. um, I think a lot of us have high functioning anxiety. Um, you know, I think COVID, you know, probably like really um, brought a lot of that to light as well. Um, Just kind of having to, you know, process things very quickly and sort of move on to the next thing. Um, You know, and we all do that in our lives just in different ways, but you know, in the medical setting, I feel like it's, it's very like high pressure. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Like, I feel like it's, like I feel like the common theme that we're like we're like getting to at here is that like it just it's like you'll all it's something that like kind of has been there since childhood and then like as we're adults and like kind of doing our own thing there's just like so many ways that can show up in different ways and like that's like the where it's like the hard part is where to identify it coming from right yeah And I guess like for a lot of the times it can be a hard realization for people when it gets to a point that it's not helping them anymore. Like I get, I hear this a lot too of like my anxiety used to be really helpful or it always helped me get A's or help me do X, Y, Z. And then it gets to this point where it's not helping you. And that can be a really hard realization too. So what are some ways that you have helped people cope with that when they realize that their high function anxiety maybe isn't serving them anymore? Yeah, you know, I think just the fact that they're in therapy with me, you know, that's a great place to start, you know, finding a great therapist. I think also kind of getting, you know, I encourage my clients to get really curious about themselves, Um, you know, just kind of get really curious about sort of why are they making the decisions that they're making, you know, really curious about their relationships, like what relationships maybe aren't serving you right now at this time in your life. Um, also using some of these symptoms of anxiety as just sort of like cues into like their emotional awareness, Mm -hmm. sort of just like, why are you having, you know, where are these thoughts coming from? Um, And then just also really developing coping strategies. I mean, I think that's really important because anxiety is going to happen, you know, good or bad, um, but having some coping strategies for that. And also I try to encourage clients just to be a little bit like, flexible. I think a lot of times with high functioning anxiety, um, we don't really give ourselves a lot of grace to sort of like make mistakes and kind of, you Mm -hmm. know, um, 
just kind of be off because we constantly want to be on. Um, so really scheduling that time for like reflection and mindfulness and self-care, like all of that is so important. And of course, to know that it's going to take some time, you know, mm-hmm. that's the biggest mm-hmm. factor too. Um, I kind of wanted to go back and like tie into the perfectionism part um, with the high functioning anxiety and like, how do you think like our society, like kind of like in a way has glorified being like a perfectionist? Like I feel like the for the longest time, like I thought like being a perfectionist was like a good thing, but in reality, it kind of like doesn't maybe like serve us in the best way sometimes. So how would you say like, you know, like society like makes it, makes it, being a perfectionist, like kind of a good thing. Right. I think we tend to think of perfectionists as the overachievers, you know, sort of like the CEOs of the world, though, you know, the ones that we should like aspire to be um, when we don't even realize that like the reason they're, you know, that even they probably know that perfectionism isn't possible, but rather it's about how they like how the perfectionism is making them feel. So I think, you know, socially, like we have this culture of like where we really want other people to like us. Um, You know, we really, we don't want to be judged harshly by other people. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then we have this culture that's very like demanding. And I think you said it before, like the hustle culture and, and that's sort of what's respected. So we kind of want to blend in, right. Like we want that. That's like our whole, um, sense of being is to be part of this bigger picture and we're going to continue to try to be big part of this bigger perfect picture when and, and every single time we we fall short you know so to speak which we will of course it kind of starts that cycle over again mm-hmm. um so we're really actually never achieving anything when we, when we feel that way um but it's kind of by design you know socially yeah And it seems like that cycle probably ends up staying too because we also have this internalized idea, like since we've been young, that you can get anything you want if you just try harder, right? If you like study harder, you'll get an A. If you try harder, you'll get into the best college. So we sometimes feel like when we don't come up to par, Mm -hmm. I imagine that it's like, okay, well, I didn't get it this time, but let me try next time. And that just keeps feeding into our perfectionism too. That's that feels like an idea that so many of us have to like unlearn that we need to just like let go sometimes, but that can be really hard to do because we feel like a failure. Right, right. And I think that word too, just failure, um, you know, that, you know, we don't really know as a society what to do when we fail. Like we don't know what to do when when the relationship ends or when we don't get the job or like when, you know we, we get an F on the test. Like we don't really know what to do with ourselves, but feel intense shame and guilt. Right. So it's like, we're not taught how to cope with such with unpleasant feelings. So what do we want to do? We want to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, so right. Cause I think like what comes with shame is also disappointment. And when you don't have the right, like coping strategies for that, like it ultimately like, you know, starts bringing you down a little bit every time you start experiencing that and then it's like almost like a cycle of going through that again and again absolutely and I think the cycle part is just is probably sort of the 
the scariest, I guess, part of all of it is that it just, it is a cycle and it can really be passed down through generations. Um, and cause you know, if we watch our parents kind of in the cycle and then we pick up on it, um, and then just sort of like continues. Yeah. And how would you say that you see, um, this high functioning anxiety and perfectionism showing up in the South Asian community? Cause you said you see that a lot. And I also know you work hundred percent right now in South Asian. Yeah. So how do you see that intersection? Yeah. So I think we have in, you know, the South Asian culture, we have like a lot of what they, what they define as other oriented perfectionism. And Mm -hmm. that sort of happens when an individual kind of imposes unrealistic standards on everybody around them. And then we, so you, you tie in that, you know, let's say that's kind of from society and parents. Right. And then you tie in also this, this element of like, you cannot fail. And if you fail, you will cause deep shame and, you know, guilt and disappointment. And then you kind of tie in these, um, the, the no, like almost no coping skills. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, what we're really doing is we're creating sort of this like monster that is perfectionism. And then when we're not able to achieve those standards or, you know, that's when we feel all of that intense guilt and shame. And so I think also the comparison, I think there's a lot of comparison in the South Asian community, right? Um, Just kind of like, Oh, look what this, this person's doing. Aren't you doing that? I know when I became a therapist, like just sort of my own personal, you know, it wasn't enough for me just to get, my masters, I had to get two masters, even, you know, and I struggled a long time with, you know, not getting my doctorate. And every time I would talk to people, they'd be like, Oh, you need to go, Oh, you're gonna go get your doctorate. And I was like, what? So I struggled with that. I mean, that was a real and I was like, and then my friends would tell me they're like, you you have two masters, like, what else do you want? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I just, I mean, it really, I mean, you don't even realize it's happening to you. You know, this is me who has a background and all of this stuff. Like, I know what that looks like. And I still, you know, fall for it. Um, But I think, you know, I think a lot of it just starts also in childhood, Um, you know, just not feeling adequate enough. And then also realizing that when you do good things, you're treated like a certain way. And when you're, when you do things that maybe not so good, you're treated another way Mm -hmm. and and you're going to, so what are you going to do at all costs? You're going to avoid feeling bad, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think perfectionism is really, you know, defined, can be defined as sort of just like a trauma response to, you know, to um, just like not feeling adequate. Yeah, because I feel like um, as like being brought up in like a South Asian community, like we're constantly seeking validation from like, you know, our like our parents or like, you know, the older people around us. And so like, that validation only comes from maybe like displaying like a good job of like, you know, doing what they like expected of you. And I think that's one of the things that like most of us struggle with is that like, it's okay to like make other expectations for yourself that like aren't aligned with like the people around you and what they expect of you. But it's also so hard to outgrow that. Like when you're just like grown up with that as well. Absolutely. And you, and we, and we're coming to find out we're not really outgrowing it. So what, what we're actually doing is we're just kind of taking it with us and we're doing that to other people. So a lot of times also I see my clients cause they're like, you know, you know, me and my partner and I are just like not getting along and I'm, you know, and that I'm not, you know, we'll kind of talk about it. And it's like, no, I expect them to be, you know, all these things. 
And it's almost like you're projecting, you want them to be perfect, right? Because yeah. that's what makes you feel good. And that, and, and then you have this conflict in the relationship. Um, it's so easy to, you know, real, like, you know, to do it. But when you're actually doing it, you're like, oh, I don't expect them to be perfect, but I want them to do just everything perfectly. <laughs> and it just, it's really confusing, but that's what people expected of you. So it's kind of natural that you're like, oh, this is how I expect of everybody. Yeah. So I think a lot of that awareness is so important. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's like you only once, only after like maybe a situation has happened, that's when you're realizing that like, oh, you're just seeking so like seeking like all this perfectionism from someone else when you yourself are already struggling with it and I think that's like I I think recognizing it for is like already like a big step and then finding ways to like I think not do that is like the next step after that right absolutely and also like recognizing it I think from just looking at my own what I've seen with one, my experience into what I've seen in the South Asian culture, that also comes with kind of breaking some generational cycles because you're recognizing that something's wrong and you're like saying it. Um, I think a lot of the time we don't admit when something is wrong. It's like kind of trucking through, like everything is fine, but to even do something like go to therapy, it's vulnerable because you're saying that something is wrong. And I think that there's a lot of power in being able to finally name it um because then you can understand what is happening and so how has that been for you to be able to see people start connecting the dots I feel like that's one of the most rewarding parts of being a therapist absolutely I mean that is so rewarding I think also just you know when my clients are using the vocabulary and just Mm -hmm. kind of you know being able to kind of connect the dots and um define it for themselves um, to be like, oh, no, this was, you know, kind of my perfectionism coming out. This was yeah. kind of my, a little bit of, you know, I've, I've been having some of my depressive symptoms. And I mean, I, I think what's missing in the South Asian community is that we don't have the vocabulary vocabulary for these things. And like, and without vocabulary, we can't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I, and I don't know if you have this experience, but a lot of times, like, I feel like, you know, it's a lot of like psychoeducation as well. Yeah. Um which, which I really enjoy, but I mean, that's a huge part of it too. And I think a lot of times when people feel like they have words to their, some of these emotions and symptoms, they do a lot better with it, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I love giving out the feelings wheel. Maybe we'll put that on (laughs) our show notes, but the feelings wheel I've noticed for not only the South Asian community, but definitely like children of immigrants, people of color, like anyone who hasn't really grown up having that kind of vocabulary it can be helpful because I often forget as a South Asian therapist and I know this already puts us in this thing and I think Rabisha can probably relate to this too because she's very like self-aware and in therapy and all this kind of stuff is that this kind of knowledge and vocabulary that we have about ourselves, a lot of the world doesn't have that and I keep forgetting that sometimes that Mm -hmm. you know it's not like common knowledge especially in our community so I really agree with you that that education piece is the foundation of it because it's not like we can implement something that we don't know how it works so definitely the psychoeducation and it can also be really empowering to finally understand what's happening right right and it's and I think it's really empowering for people to kind of look at the really intimate relationships in their lives and kind of say like oh like that's why that might have happened. Or, you know, maybe, you know, my parent had high functioning anxiety. Mm -hmm. And like, it gives us just, I mean, what I, you know, what I 
just so much more information. And I think that's what we really lacked growing up, right? We didn't have a lot of like words, we didn't have a lot of information. And now, you know, we are kind of like what I said before, getting really curious about ourselves, mm-hmm. because we kind of have to be right when we're experiencing all these, a lot of these uncomfortable feelings, you know, at that point, we're going to get curious. Yeah, Divi and I discuss this a lot that like the resources that we have available to us now versus maybe like during our parents' time, like it's like so different. And it's also just like so great to know that like there is a development in this that, you know, we are like we are trying to find out more. We are trying to like research more. And like that's what's like, you know, like think about like Instagram and how you guys have like mental health pages and like the advice that you're giving, like for someone to even like read that on the day-to-day basis can help them so much and create like a sense of self-awareness that like 20 years ago was not there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think a lot of South Asian mental health therapists, you know, it's kind of like you're also being that person that you needed, right. When you Mm -hmm. were that age. And I think that's, there's something really powerful and beautiful about that as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that's so important is kind of thinking about our own experiences of what maybe we wish we had and then being able to create that because it's not like other people don't need that, right? That everyone has that kind of wish or have needs that kind of fulfillment. But now we're able to take some steps in doing that. And I think that that's, that's really cool to be able to do. Um, and it's really empowering, which I imagine that like is really something that your clients appreciate a lot like what are some other things that you do with your clients to work on high functioning anxiety perfectionism um just some tips for our listeners as we continue to talk about this yeah I think you know something that works um is sort of sitting with uncomfortable emotions um that is something I like to practice with my clients so for example if you're feeling triggered or having a comfortable emotion you know setting like the two minute timer and just sitting with that emotion and just gradually increasing that time I think the problem that we have is that we think that every emotion is giving us a lot of information and sometimes or every thought needs to be you know everything needs a reaction yeah Um, I think the first step is really to minimize the reactions. Um, So that's something I feel like works. Um, Of course, just practicing mindfulness. I mean, I'm a big fan of that. Um, I've had to learn how to practice that as well. Um, And, you know, just really take, you know, whatever that looks like to you. Um, I'm not going to tell everybody to meditate or, you know, all that. But, you know, really just taking that time out for yourself. Um, you know, daily or weekly even. Um, and just having that space for yourself to sort of just exist. Um, and then also just really kind of figuring out what is making you uncomfortable and sort of getting curious about that and trying to figure out like, okay, is this a, a relationship? Is it, you know, like, like what is this telling me really? Mm-hmm. Um I feel like some of that helps a lot, kind of just manage the high functioning anxiety. Um, and, and I, but I would say like probably the biggest one is going to be to sit with the uncomfortable feelings um, because we really like to avoid feeling bad. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say, I feel like avoiding those feelings is most probably like the, the common thing that people do rather than like sitting in with like, and trying to like, 
accept how they're feeling because I think again like when you're avoiding it you think then you're not you don't have to like deal with it but it always shows up in other ways yeah it always catches up to you mm-hmm. right right and then it sort of you know might look like outbursts or irritability or you know not feeling satisfied um so it, it's like it's going to show up in your life in some way and like it's kind of you know, if we don't really have that time to be, you know, where we're not being mindful and we're not really reflecting, we're not able to kind of catch those spots in our life where we are feeling really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, do you feel like with your clients sometimes like there are like certain ro- roadblocks that they experience when they're trying to like shift their thoughts and behaviors? Like if you can maybe like talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think every kind of change is going to be uncomfortable to an extent. And, you know, and, and I do say that, and I, you know, I think a lot of therapists say that they're like, it's going to, it's not going to feel good. <laughs> like every session, like you're not going to walk out of here feeling like you, you know, figure something out, but it will happen. You know, it just, it takes some time. Um, so I definitely say like being really patient, you know, um, with yourself. I, you know, my clients often are with me long-term, um, you know, not that, not to say they're in therapy every single week, but, you know, we do have a lot of like a a longer maintenance period, I would say, especially with my South Asian clients, Mm -hmm. um, because it just takes a little bit of practice, you know, to put some of these things in motion. Um, another thing that sometimes happen that's kind of roadblocks is like a shift in your relationships. Like maybe, maybe therapy is causing you to look at a friendship a different way. Mm-hmm. And that friendship kind of changes, or maybe even like your intimate relationship with a, you know, partner and that sort of changes. Um, I think it's about just like also being sort of open-minded, you know, and that also can be a roadblock in itself. Um, also like, you know, sometimes you're going to feel just really dissatisfied. You know, you're going to, it's going to bring up some like intense feelings of like that guilt, that shame, um, you know, sort of like, why did I do those? Like, why did I make these decisions or I wouldn't be where I am? So there's a lot of regret in play too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes my South Asian clients were talking about childhood. Um, and, you know, I, when I first started working with South Asian clients, that really was never my intention almost. Um, but that's where we always seem to have to start. Um, we have to talk about what happened um, during during those like formative years, um, yeah. and, and you know that's probably the first time a lot of my clients have ever even discussed you know certain things about their childhood um, or found the relevance mm-hmm. almost in it to who they are today. Because um, you know we're kind of always just taught you know our parents did what they could do, right? Mm-hmm. So, but to really define what does that mean. Um, so I definitely like to kind of explain to the clients that, you know, sometimes it's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable or, you know, maybe really intense before it gets better. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing up also how anxiety, it's not only anxiety, like there's a lot of other emotions that can come up too, because um, anxiety, I'm, I mean, I always, I always say this, I'm pretty sure that it's, it's, it's actually factual but that it's one of those it's like a secondary emotion right it's not like a primary emotion in the way that like you experience anxiety after you're experiencing something else so it's usually not the first thing but I think it's easier for people to say 
oh, I'm feeling anxious than to talk about what's underlying that. So it's almost like impossible to talk about anxiety without talking about other feelings and emotion regulation skills and tools. So it's not like this quick fix. So I appreciate you bringing that up to our listeners because I sometimes think with, you know, when we talk about anxiety, since it's probably one of the most common, um, like mental health struggles, people are like, oh, I'm anxious, but let me go to therapy a few times and like, it'll be fine. Right, right. And I think, and you know, anxiety, like you said, it being kind of that secondary emotion. And I, I completely agree with you. I think it's like the shame, the regret, the, yeah. you know, the guilt, all of that is, is what's really heavy and what's weighing on, weighing on you. Yeah. I guess as we start kind of like wrapping up with all of these tips, I, we really like, like the end being very tip and actionable, um, focused, heavy. What would you say would be ways that people can set realistic goals and set realistic expectations when they're working with their high functioning anxiety or perfectionism? Yeah, I think, First, I would say sort of list out what you want, like what you're doing right now. Like, what are you doing right now? Kind of like, what's your schedule? What are sort of your obligations? Um, and also like kind of lift out, list out what are your relationships? Like, mm-hmm. who are who are these primary relationships in your life? Kind of who are the secondary relationships? And, you know, and why that always sounds like a lot of work. I'm like, just make it, make it a note in your, you know, in your phone. Um, and then sort of evaluate everything sort of step-by-step sort of like, what about your daily schedule? Do you, are you not kind of, um, in sync with, or like, what's something that you would, that you could do without, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then like kind of from there, I would just kind of evaluate, okay, how can I make, how can you make your week sort of sustainable, um, actionable, but also, where you feel a little bit more consistently at peace. Um, so that can look like, you know, I have a lot of people that are like, I want to work out every day or like five days a week. And then they're like, okay, well, I didn't, I can't do five days a week. So I'm going to do zero days a week. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, you don't need to do either. Or, you know, I was like, why don't you just try one day a week? This, for example, okay, I can probably do one day a week. That's okay. That's a great starting point. Mm. I think really just taking out like some of these expectations for yourself that are just so much, like we try to do so much in our week. Um, and then, you know, for example, you know, they're like, oh, I can't wake up for a 7am, you know, yoga class. And I'm like, okay, why don't you try the 5pm? Like, Mm -hmm. what is it that you can't just kind of be a little flexible with yourself. If you wake up and you don't feel good, why are you forcing yourself to do something? Um, so I think really just, you know, again, I'm going to say it like getting curious. Um, something I love to tell my clients too, I say like everything is a mirror. Um, and so like really like looking at these pieces of your life, looking at your day to day, like I love, I love the mundane. I love the day to day stuff because that's the stuff that turns into the big stuff um, and trying to and kind of see like what is serving you and what is not. And, and also like how flexible are you being with yourself? You know, if you make that 5 PM class, did you still like kind of get the benefits from, you know, working out? I mean, most likely, yes. Um, so I think really, I think a lot of people are just kind of 
they're not really knowing like what they're doing until they actually like kind of like write it out or, you know, of course, like talking to talking to somebody about it. Um, and then kind of figuring out what are this like kind of pieces or themes in my life that are not serving me as much as I need them to, or what are some things that maybe I'm doing too much in this way and that I can kind of cut that down. Um, yeah. And also giving yourself like, kind of the, you know, sort of privilege of getting to know yourself again. You know, I think that's really important too. You change so much with, you know, with different life events and relationships. And so just getting kind of, you know, getting to know yourself and like, what what do I even like again? Um, I think that's really important. So I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah. Those are really, really helpful tips because you're so right that we often go from almost like zero to a hundred. It's like, Oh, I couldn't make the 7am. I'm just not going to do it. Screw it. So I really appreciate you saying that we can compromise or that's not even really that much of a compromise, but you know what I mean? Like we can, we can like change the way that we view something to be and we can take a different path. So I think that's going to be really um, helpful for our listeners. So I really appreciate you sharing a lot of that yeah I'm like really glad you kind of brought up that example as well because I think like for someone for some of us that are like always trying to seek that perfectionism I feel like there's like some no middle ground sometimes Mm -hmm. it's either like one way or the other and I feel like we have to like really work on finding that middle ground space to like for example, to build up to like five workouts a week, you know, like you, you can't just go from zero to a hundred and it's, right. it's, it's something not- we struggle with. Right. Exactly. It's just, it's just not sustainable. So I think being honest with yourself and just kind of being flexible with yourself, giving yourself some grace that you give other people, you know, um, I think those are all great places to start. I love that. That is such a good ending point that the giving the grace that you give other people that is that even when you said that I was like wow that is so true because we're so easy to give other people grace but giving ourselves grace so those are two points I really take that one of giving grace and then to be curious with ourselves so I think that those are really some awesome points that I mean I have just taken away I imagine our listeners taken so much more away but I really appreciate you being so candid and open and sharing a lot with us yeah of course this is great yeah, we really appreciated appreciated having you on. I feel like um, we kind of like have talked about this topic like here and there with our episodes, but I haven't like focused a whole episode on it. So thank you yeah. so much for coming on and talking about like all that you've learned about high functioning anxiety and like coping skills. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. So as we're wrapping up, how can our listeners find you? Yeah, so I have a practice um, in and it's uh, www.loveyourbehavior.com and I'm also on Instagram at loveyourbehavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and that's my, my email is Ayushi at loveyourbehavior.com. So I started okay. my practice in just March. So it's new. Um, so exciting. Yes. Yeah, so as of right now, I'm in Texas and working on Georgia. So yeah, awesome. it's been an exciting time. Great. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. So yeah, check her out, follow her on Instagram and you are in the Texas area and looking for a therapist. (laughs) She's your girl. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode and we will see you next week. Thanks again, Ayushi, for joining us. Thanks. Thanks.
Thank you for tuning into another episode of Conversations Brewing. We hope you take some moments to reflect on our episode with some coffee in hand. New episodes of Conversations Brewing come out on Tuesdays. We'd love to hear from you about what resonated with you and what you want to hear more about. So let us know on Instagram at our account at Conversations Brewing. If this episode was helpful, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and continue to tune in weekly. We so appreciate your support and we'll brew some conversations with you next week.